quickly for our listeners, as many of you know, uh, during coronavirus, we've been recording over our phones and using very like low-key technology to get these episodes to you. You're going to hear that in this episode. We had a couple interruptions and you can hear, um, like as we're talking on our phones, you can kind of hear a little bit of like noise, um, so I just wanted to let you know it did not it was it's only for a few seconds here and there so you will hear that disruption and I just wanted to let you all know to keep listening and that it's one of my favorite episodes and I hope Drew and I definitely hope that you enjoy it. So thank you for listening and thank you for being patient uh as we figure out better recording strategies through the pandemic. Hi, I'm Drew. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am a general pediatrician at a community health center with a large youth transgender medicine practice. And I'm Lizette Trujillo. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a small business owner, uh, mother of a 13-year-old trans child, and advocate. And this is... I stand by you. With Lizette. And Drew. Together, we talk about allyship, building community, and showing up for for one one another. another. (laughs) Welcome to this next episode. All right. Good morning, everyone. I'm super excited to have our guest on today. She is one of my sorority sisters, <laughs> president of uh, national president of Capital Takai, um, and also has her own law firm with her wife called Arno Martinez Law. And I'm just super excited. Paula Arno Martinez is here to talk to us about allyship, uh, a little bit about herself and also talk about the importance of allyship for immigrants and undocumented people under this really scary, difficult time. Um, And so Paula, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining us. So the reason why I reached out to Paula was because we heard that awful um, story with the whistleblower coming out of Georgia about the mass sterilizations out of that private owned detention center. And I was just really grateful that you came on to talk a little bit about that and the legalities around that. But first I wanted you, Paula, to have a chance to talk about yourself and like what like what brought you to do the work that you do. Oh, all right, where do I start? All right. Um, <laughs> So I'm originally from Texas, um, which is, I was born close to the border and was raised in Houston. Um, and my father's family is Mexican-American, Tejano. My mom's from the Dominican Republic. So I always conceptually had an understanding of immigration because some of my earliest memories are going to the immigration office with my mom um, because she was in the process of becoming a citizen to try to bring her family over from the Dominican Republic. And that process, I saw it took a long time, um, but 
during my childhood, we lived in Houston, which is super, super diverse. There's people from everywhere. And I quickly began to see the disparities of people who came, quote unquote, with papers and people who didn't um, and how just harder life was for those folks and how and through that seeing how people who had an attorney how they were treated were were versus people who weren't so that definitely influenced um the work that i do and wanted to do because i really wanted to try to do something to to help wash those disparities um what was the next question sorry Just a little about yourself. Oh, um, so yeah, now I live in, in Washington State. I started off my career in nonprofit work, um, but I quickly became disillusioned with the nonprofit industrial complex, um, <clears throat> which is pretty nasty. And I realized after that, I always had this mentality well, you're, <clears throat> sorry, if you're a private attorney, you know, you're an a-hole and you're just out to make money. But I met a lot of private attorneys who do really good work and really care about their clients. So I began to say that maybe that was an option um, rather than being caught up in this other system, which sometimes perpetuates and further victimizes clients, that I could do my own work and do the cases I wanted to do, do the good work that I wanted to do, and still, you know, not be abusive to the client. So I really, really enjoy being in private practice. Um, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. Um, and, yeah, we, since we live in Washington, I do like to hike and go outside and, and do those activities. So that's also a nice escape from the day-to-day realities that our clients face and Consequently, we face as well. I love watching because I work with my spouse too. And uh-huh. so I loved when you were all decorating your new office. It's fun to see people work, like couples work together. So I always yes, enjoyed watching you do yeah. that. <laughs> I'm like, yay, Paul. I don't know how y'all do it. I know, right? <laughs> well, Paul goes on long hikes. about it. No. <laughs> Um, Drew, did you have any questions before I... Yeah, I, you know what, I have a, I am wondering sort of a, I don't know if you know this, but sort of a historical question, because, so when I was growing up, I grew up in a small town in California, um, it's about 60, 70%, um, Mexican, um, many in California for generations, and... At the time, I mean, I remember we would have people who were crossing through, like we would give them tangerines off our tree and water and stuff like that. But I had classmates who were undocumented, and it it wasn't a thing. Like people crossed the border back and forth for work, families, and everything else. When did it start becoming really such a, you know, a big deal this time? You know, I, even as I was a child, I, you know, visiting my family in South Texas, the border was just 
I didn't quite understand the implications because it seemed to me to be so fluid. Um, people would come and go as they pleased. Um, and I don't know if maybe I just wasn't aware of when that started becoming more um, politicized. But I think definitely after September 11, um, 2001, when the, depart the government was restructured and the de Department of Homeland Security was formed, um, I was still in high school, but for me, that's when I remember thinking a little bit more about these things because, you know, the media was saying, oh, the terrorists are going to come in through the southern border. And it, I was kind of like, well, that doesn't make any sense. But no. <laughs> that's when I became more conscious of it. Um, and then as gang violence has escalated in, in Central America and Mexico and other instability in other countries, um, I don't know if... It really is that more folks are coming or if it's just more politicized and, you know, we hear about it more. Yeah, I, I often think that it's it is overcounted at this point um, or, or over-focused on. Uh, I, um, and anytime I hear those stories about like, oh, yeah, terrorists are going to come through, it makes me think about people I knew as a kid. Um, I just find it shocking that anyone consider that terrorists would have been traveling. Yeah. So I grew up on the border too, like 45 minutes from. Drew, you sound a little low again. I just wanted to. Okay. Um, uh, I grew up on the border too, and it was fluid. Like I, I call it cultural sharing. The couple times I've gone to DC and I've expressed being near a border, it was, there was a lot of cultural sharing, a lot of being able to go back and forth. I used to stay two weeks out of the summer with my tia on the other side of the border, and my cousin would come stay two weeks out of the summer with me. Um, but my spouse will say that, and I too sensed some microaggressions from um, people who were not Latinx, but like who were curious about our status or lack thereof. Um, and my sp uh, my spouse who came at nine will say that like it wasn't as friendly as mm. those of us who were born here remember it to be, uh, that there was a lot of fear around that, uh, about people finding out. Um, and it takes a long time, even if someone petitions you, it takes years, decades, uh, depending on what country you're yeah. from. And so, but I do think that after after September 11th, it got, it just heightened. And I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of misinformation about what it is to live along a border. Um, and I think people scare people who live in other parts of the country, clearly, because there's just so much misinformation and mischaracterization of what happens along the border. Paula, yeah. do you ever talk to people about, because I like to know, like, why things are happening, right? Like, like I like to know, like, the complexities and the nuance of things. And I often tell people, I really wish we could see how we have been active participants in migrant movement because of climate change and the disruption of governments in South America. Do you ever, like 
as immigration lawyers, do you all you like utilize and talk about that, the nuances of migration and why people are migrating? Uh, absolutely. So one of my most favorite books I've ever read um, is called Inevitable Revolutions. So it's basically um, like an anthology of the different ways the U.S. has actively this destabilized countries in Central and South America um, and how that has created the conditions that we see today. And so definitely when we're working on asylum cases, um, we get into that historical context of, you know, why are the governments this way? Why are they unable to control these, you know, bad actors um, that are targeting folks? Um, So, yeah, I think I'm... Hoping most immigration attorneys do it, but I think it's it's something that if the quote unquote mainstream America knew how complicit our government is um, in destabilizing these countries and the long term ramifications, because it's not like oh well that was in the fifties, so they should be over it by now. Like no, we continue to to act in that way and i mean honestly it all comes down to capitalism it all comes down to money it's a money thing Mm -hmm. um it's american corporations wanting to be able to exploit foreign labor labor foreign resources and, and get away with it and because of how our political system is set up our politicians are beholden to money yeah. you don't have money you don't get elected um so i think it it's definitely something that we need to have more awareness about and education. And I myself didn't learn about any of that until even after college. Um, it's just not something that that we learn here. Yeah. Unless you take that initiative. Right, right. And I, I, and I think one of the things where we hear a lot now talking about climate change related to migration um, we have to realize that not only is it the climate change we're generating within our own country, but the way we use those resources and take them in other countries and fight against regulations in other countries mm-hmm. makes it even more of an issue. Mm-hmm. Like it's the snowball that compounds itself. Um, and it's, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And it, and it is not just the U S but it is just capitalism. Right. Um, right. Exactly. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I get um, tired. So for our honeymoon, we went to Peru and we were heading up to one of the glaciers and the cab driver was like, the mountainsides are just scarred really bad from mine. And the cab driver was like, yeah, these Canadian mining companies came in destroyed the land, got rich and left, and now folks are dealing with being poisoned. They're dealing with their glaciers disappearing. So it, it's definitely not just the U.S., but I, I agree. It's absolutely an issue of capitalism. Do you think that if we, I often wonder, like, if you give people information on why this is happening, would they change their minds? I think... So, in my experience, um, like, if there was, like, this 
article in the newspaper or like whatever media people are consuming these days, I don't think it would have that big of an impact. I think these kinds of conversations need to happen one-on-one yeah. um, because folks automatically get defensive. They don't want to believe that the U.S. is doing these horrible things. Um, but I've found that once you talk to people one-on-one, it kind of gets them thinking and then they start to see that and they don't feel as attacked. So, um, yeah, I, I think if people knew, they might feel differently, but we have to be careful of how we disseminate that knowledge or it will just have the opposite effect since everything is so polarized these days. It's interesting that you say that because it's when they pick and choose, right? Because they do talk right. a lot about the deep state and the evils of the deep state, but right. yet, like refuse to think about like global impacts that the U.S. has in other places. So it's interest. It's an interesting time. Yeah, it, that's to say the least. <laughs> so, it's also really, I mean, it's also hard to have the conversation with someone and then to realize that when you go out to the store and your pineapple from Dole is mm-hmm. only 99 cents a can, um, that you're actually supporting yeah. that system. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, did either of you ever watch the show? What's it called? Like the good, the good, um, uh, the girl from the Kristen Wiig came out in it. The Good, good place. place. Yes. Did, did either of you watch that? I watched. No. I watched some of it. Yeah. There was an episode. There was an episode where, like, okay, so it's about like heaven and hell, right? Um, spoiler. And they are like wondering. It's like towards the end of the show, so spoilers. But they're like wondering why people aren't getting into heaven, right? And they meet this one person on Earth who's like doing everything he can to live morally. So like he won't like eat, like won't buy certain, like won't buy produce from certain places and like won't buy fabric from a certain store and like trying really hard not to participate in capitalism, but somehow always fails because everything is tied to like some sort of oppression of other people. And it's just, it's so complex. Like you start having this conversation and you're like, yeah, no, like everything we buy, we consume, we use has like impacts on other people. Um, and so we're not, it goes back to what our episode was about last, um, what our last episode was about Drew, which is this idea of like individualism and that we don't impact the people around us. And or we don't need to be responsible for people around us, whether that be like globally or locally. Um, And so it's it's I'm always trying to find ways to connect the dots for for myself and for people in my life, because I find that it just it makes me better understand what I'm doing, what systems I'm a part of, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I went on a long rant. I want to know about you, Paula, because um, so I'm like fangirling because Paula and I have never officially met. And we met like during this interesting time in our sorority that we don't need to get into. But we met during this really interesting time. Hey, actually, on the whole sorority thing, 
Can I ask you to? Yes. So, obviously, so tell me about the sorority experience and what that does in terms of what we're talking about with community building and allyship. Because um, <clears throat> I have no idea. I, I'm not going to go into my background with those sorts of things because it's not good. Right. Um, and instead, I'll let you talk. And I don't mean not good as in bad things. I was a different, I was a different person at that time <laughs> and did some things I'm totally not proud of. Um, but would like to know kind of what your, what your experience has been and how that works for the allyship part of it. And do you um, want to go first? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think the sorority definitely had a huge impact on me as an undergraduate. Um, I was, I like many of our members, the first in my family to go into higher education. Um, my school wasn't that far away from home, but my mom swore I was moving to the end of the world. It was only three hours away. Um, and a few folks from my high school went there, but not anyone I was really friends with. So I really did have to create this whole new community, being in a new place, being 18 and out of my house for the first time. So definitely in, in we're a Latina um, founded sorority and I knew that community service was important to me, giving back. So I found this great group of women and it was like I'd known them my whole life. Um, it was a wonderful experience. I'm still very close to a lot of my chapter sisters and through further involvement in the organization have gotten close to members, um, you know, across the U.S. and getting to meet people like Lizette, even if virtually. So I think it, it the sorority is oftentimes a second home for a lot of folks. Um, and, you know, we are like a family and just like families, we fight and have disagreements. But at the end of the day, we're all here for the same reason. Um, so I, I would say it's very different from the sorority fraternity stereotypes that you see on like TV or movies or whatever. It really is truly like a family. I call it homegirl loyalty. For real. <laughs> <laughs> no, um. Yeah, so I joined in like 1998 and very much the same like Paula, um, a first generation. My school was in the same, like I went to the U of A, so it was the same city I grew up in. Um, <clears throat> but my parents had a really hard time letting go. And it was just a new, I needed them. It was so helpful to have women who had already kind of accomplished their freshman year because I felt so lost in a sea of 40,000 students or however many students were there. Um, and so connecting with other women who had shared value systems, I mean, not 100%, but like shared, we grew up with, in similar value systems and our parents had the same expectations and, a, and an understanding of each other um, made navigating that new world easier, I think. And as I've grown, I've gotten to see these women flourish and move into careers and spaces where you usually wouldn't see Latinx women. And I find that really inspiring to see these women really um, having an impact in their adult lives. Um, and I'm always kind of in awe of everyone as we move forward in life. I It was a it was a pivotal, pivotal time in my life. Um, 
And Jose, my spouse, was always like, well, why are your sorority sisters always around when we were first dating and married? And I was like, they're sort of like part of the package. Um, and as we've gotten older, I mean, like things shift and change. I, but there is a loyalty, I think, um, that I haven't experienced with other people. Um, and, but it's not to say that it hasn't shifted and changed in this political climate and as like our lives shift and change. Um, because I will say that I had some sorority sisters that were like gung-ho about supporting me with Daniel. And then there were a few that just felt uncomfortable about it. But but they were but they are there still. Like, you know what I mean? Like I've only lost yeah. like really lost only like three sorority sisters out of the very many that are in my circle. Um where where it was like we can't be friends because you're not supportive um so yeah but um yeah so i think it was a great experience i'm a little bit older than paula um or a lot of bit older than paula (laughs) maybe (laughs) by a few years um but I was, I've let's been not, watching let's not get Paula. into that age stick at all here. I know, but I've been watching Paula on social media and she's done such amazing things. And I'm like, oh, and I always love reading your posts. And um, so we do have a virtual <laughs> friendship, which is weird that we've never met, but I do fangirl. And I wanted to talk about like Paula, like you, because we met at a really interesting time in our sorority where we had grown so much that we had diverse voices, like more diverse voices than we did when I joined in 98. And not only that, but culturally there had been a shift, right? Like we were seeing right. people pushing for inclu- like for inclusivity. We were seeing our Latinx organization grow from a Latinx um, founded and uh, service to to being more multicultural and diverse in who uh, who its members were. We were also seeing a lot of LGBTQIA membership. Um, we do have siblings who are trans, um, and so it was like a like a societal and cultural shift that was happening before all of our eyes. And many of us were way more outspoken about our experiences and what was happening. So I would love to know like what it was like for you to be a a lesbian identified woman in a sorority. And like, did you ever have moments where you felt like you couldn't share? Or did you feel like this is something that I can be open with with my sisters? I know that I have some sorority sisters that I think about often and hold in my heart that in 1998, it still wasn't safe, right? Like, it just wasn't a time for them to be out or to be sharing their experience in that way because we were still such a cishet like society. If yeah. that makes sense. So um, I joined in 2004 and at the time I hadn't even come to term with my own queerness myself. Yeah. Um, so it was definitely an, a struggle I wasn't, ready to address, um, even inwards, but I, you know, we were all very close and it was because of the sorority that I was able to finally address my queerness and be comfortable with it. And my sisters are the first people I came out to. And I can say that they're what, with at least within my chapter, I never felt like, oh God, I can't tell anyone. And we had already had a few members who... Um, had come out before so 
it wasn't a huge deal, but it was definitely nice to have that support system because my family is super evangelical Christian, um, and I knew I wouldn't have that at home. Um, so I really, really relied on the relationships I created within the sorority to kind of help me get through that. Now, now that you mentioned your family, what was it like did to come out to them? Was that, did you do that or was, did you take your time? I took a long time. <laughs> so, um, I honestly, I honestly thought I could go my whole life without coming out. I did not want to have that conversation. Um, yeah, there were questions of, well, why don't you have a boyfriend or whatever? But because I went, I went from undergrad, I worked, then I went back to law school. My family was like, oh, well, she's just studying. And so I kind of got the heat off for a little bit. Um, so I moved to Washington immediately after law school. Um, and I met my now wife. And so at that point, I knew I can't not come out. That's not an option anymore. Um, I mean, I didn't expect to be the love of my life or, and, you know, I just thought I will, I'll be single and cool and, you know, whatever, I won't have to address this, but, you know, the universe had other plans for me and I couldn't deny it. So my, my immediate family, I think they always kind of knew, honestly, um, my dad unfortunately passed away before I was able to tell him, but I I know that he knew and he didn't care. My mom was the one I was more concerned about in her side of the family because they're so religious, but that's definitely still a struggle. Um, they've met my wife, they like her, but I definitely still get those comments of, well, we're praying for you and, um, you know, things like that. And none of them came to my wedding, which was also pretty upsetting. But I think that my mom definitely has her regrets about that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it is what it is. But definitely without the support of my sisters, I, I don't think I would have been brave enough to have done it. Thank you for wow, sharing that's that. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to lose family, especially like I call it like my um, my year of rage because I couldn't figure out why I was so angry because we spent some time a few years not talking to our extended family and my mom. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was like angry all the time. Like Jose could like breathe wrong or too loud. And I was like, <laughs> I hate you. And he was like, why are you so angry? And then one day he was like, He's the one who said it. He's like, oh, you're upset that our family's not around. And I think it's because we don't think about the gap that will right. occur when they're no longer. Like, what do you do for Easter and Christmas? Like, all these things that you're enmeshed in that are just sort of, like, habit that all of a sudden are gone. Um, and I had to, like, let that sink in. When he said that, I, I burst into tears. Um and I, I think I didn't have language for why I was just so angry. Because I think you're supposed to, like, brave up, right? And, like, be like, oh, that doesn't yeah. bother me. But it's such a painful process, I think, for me at least. Yeah, it was it was definitely painful and really almost embarrassing that, 
you know, nobody came to my wedding, like not my brother, yes. not my mom, not anyone. And, and you know, I, I thought that they were quote unquote, okay with it, but because of weird church stuff, they didn't come. Mm-hmm. So that really, really hurt. And it was hard to kind of put on that brave face of like, well, this doesn't bother me, but it did. And it did for years. I think I'm finally okay with it. I mean, in the end, it was their loss, not mine. I still yeah. had a great time. Um, but it's, yeah, it it's that, I mean, I was expecting it. I had prepared myself for the very worst. Like I would be outright rejected and that didn't happen, but it still definitely hurt and still coming to terms of like, I don't know how to nicely say, please don't pray for me to find a husband because it's not going to happen. Right. Right. It really is amazing that as things keep changing on this, there are sort of these constants that happen with acceptance within families. Um, We actually had a really, really bad um, encounter at our office this week who we had referred to us and we called the family and um, to schedule their appointment to come in and talk about gender identity. Um, And the, the, the family actually told my medical assistant that unless we told the kid that it was wrong and they shouldn't transition, um, that we were going to burn in hell. Um, and it was one of those things. It was just so shocking to hear it. Like I have not, I have never, I, my family didn't have religion, so we never had to go through that. But it sounds so archaic now, Um, but it's not. It's still there. Yeah, it is. And like, it's still very much alive. And it's such an interesting, like, like I think as it's funny because when it happened, like for us, it was like less religion and more cultural. Right. Like this doesn't happen in our family. Like this is American, like your American way. But I'm really glad, Paula, that you use the word embarrassed because I had a long talk with Drew last week where I was like, I'm just embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that this would be an issue. Like I get embarrassed that like that I would have issues with my parent or extended family. It feels so embarrassing that you don't have this thing um, in your life that you should have it together. Um, I think because we work so hard to, um, I think we work so hard to be our best for them. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, because we're in, I don't know, I was like, you're going to go to school and this is like legacy and this is family and all this stuff. And then family betrays you and you're like, whoa, I guess it wasn't all the things that people I guess family isn't the the thing that everyone says it is because it's conditional when I've come to you about this. So it's interesting, but I think too around youth support, it's, I think what's even more devastating is that we still see the number of like, uh, of suicide attempts stay pretty much the same or go higher depending on the publication. Um, and that isn't even deterrent enough for parents to be supportive 
Yeah, it's it's still very prevalent. And we live right now in Washington, which is a blue state, but we live in a very conservative area of Washington. Um, and so we definitely even see here queer youth who get kicked out, who are homeless, because mostly because of religious and, you know, those kinds of concerns. But I think social media makes it so much worse also. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure that's also having an impact on, yes, maybe the world is quote-unquote more accepting, but people are vicious online. And especially in these small towns, we've heard some pretty or horrendous things that honestly they almost make me afraid to have kids here because it's just vicious. I was going to ask well, you about that. Well, it used to be, and the thing you said about social media is so true because I remember, and I grew up in a really small conservative town, and you know what? You would have someone turn to you and you know call you a faggot or something like that. But now on social media it's blasted out permanently to tons of people when someone does that. (laughs) I'm wondering, I wanted to ask you about like living in Washington in a same sex, in a same sex couple, like having a business, have you encountered discrimination? You know, not that I'm aware of anyway. Um, So, We did live in Seattle for a bit while Vanessa was finishing law school. Um, And I honestly fully expected to experience like outright hate here, but we haven't. Um, But we're also very like careful in public still. Um, But our, so far have had good experiences um, with with folks and it's with our clients it's always tricky because they are generally you know very conservative and also religious and so people notice we have the same last names and they'll be like oh are you cuñadas or sisters-in-laws and we're like oh well we're family (laughs) we look very different um and so but lately, it's been interesting. We've gotten a lot of um, queer couples as clients. Um, and so I don't know if they know about us or how they're finding us. But um, I think it. I'm glad that we can be a safe space for them. Um, most clients don't cry too much. But, I mean, if anybody Googled us, it's very public and... Yeah. But luckily, nobody has said anything, at least not to our faces. Well, um, no, they need your it. help. But yeah, because I yeah. often think about that. Like you're like at the intersection of the intersections of things that people yeah. talk crap about, right? Like you're an immigration lawyer and married to your wife and you have an immigrant, like you have a law firm that serves immigrant people. So you're like at the intersection of the intersection of politics, right? And like what's politicized. So I often wonder, and you're in Washington and I hear that, that it's, it's a blue state, but still the pockets in rural areas are very conservative. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the map, it's like what's actually blue is like the sliver of Seattle and the coast. Everywhere else is super red. Um, 
So it's, you know, I think out here the problem isn't necessarily homophobia. It's more racism. Yeah. Um, and so I just don't think it occurred to them that gay people could also live here and are also of color. But um, thankfully, it's not been too bad. I mean, we bought a house together here. We bought a car together and everyone was, was pretty nice about it. But um, it's definitely interesting with clients when you see them trying to figure out what's the relationship and like it never comes to oh we're married to each other like that's just unfathomable to them i love to hear that your work is expanding out to other queer couples and like being able to help them navigate the system especially now when it feels like we're so close to losing everything again right um right especially with like the new scotus appointee um and what would well, that this has look been like? a this has been a really bad year for yeah. immigration and queer couples yeah um and there's these ongoing lawsuits where the you know the state department has decided oh we're going to deny citizenship to right, children born yeah. through surrogacy and it's like seriously that's who you're picking on yeah oh it's 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 a lot, yeah, for sure. And can you talk a little bit for the for the straight people in the audience? Um, I think I know what you mean when you talk about being careful. Um, but in your day to day life, how can you talk a little bit about how that looks so people have an idea? Yeah. So it's I my love language is is touch, um, and so I'm. I'm very touchy, even with my friends and, you know, whatever. But it's, you know, I definitely have to be conscious of I can't walk down the street and hug my wife or hold her hand or, you know, give her a peck because I don't want that attention. Um, And it's something that straight people never have to think about. But we're definitely conscious of that and, you know, who's around. And so... We went to um, Costco um, with, she's not our foster daughter, but this young lady who lives with us. And so I think she was, she's like um, biracial. So that's already getting a lot of looks in this town. Um, and she was, she said, I don't know if I'm being paranoid, but like, I feel like everyone was looking at us. And me and Vanessa are like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, there's me, and then you two are obviously in love. And when she said that, we were like, what? Like, are we obviously in love in public? Like, it was kind of alarming, but um, because I thought, like, oh, we're so careful. But it's just, you know, especially if when we travel at all times, you kind of have to be hyper aware of am I drawing attention to my otherness Um, and, you know, are we safe? It's a safety issue. Yeah, and I think I think it's something that doesn't occur to people, but when you talk about it, they can understand it. Mm-hmm. And my yeah. hope is my hope is always that, like, when I share the fact that you know there's a sunset on the beach, I want to put my arm around my husband, and I can't. That that makes them realize, like, oh, maybe I need to think about this in other areas as well yeah. like you know 
maybe people really are getting followed around in the store all the time because they're brown. Yeah. Or, um, you know, maybe I do need to think about the fact that the police are killing black men yeah. um, and women. Yeah. And I mean, but I feel sometimes I feel like the, the queer experience is it's one that sometimes is a good, I don't know, gateway experience for people to have them start <laughs> realizing who we other in society. Um, I don't know. I just, and that was honestly why, cause I, we have exactly that same experience. Um, and I hate it. And I hate the fact that it makes us even in safe spaces, like right. you know, staying in, we were staying in an Airbnb on Capitol Hill in Seattle. You don't get a lot bluer than that. And right. still walking down the street, it feels weird to hold hands because mm -hmm. it's so public. Yeah. I think it's important. I mean, as like, you know, we often talk about like the labor of marginalized people and how you shouldn't have to tell us these things. But like even yesterday, I was with my mom and my and my youngest sibling and um, my sibling shared a story about how she was like walking. She got followed to her car. And if you meet my youngest sister, she's queer identified, very masculine Um and has these encounters a lot where people will follow her because of the way she looks, because she's with her girlfriend. Um, and my mom is one of those people that's like, oh, those negative things only happen on social media. So just don't look at social media and life really isn't that bad. And so when my sister shares these stories with her, I think it's eye opening because my mom gets very quiet. But I think it's really important for her to understand that it's not safe, as safe as you believe it is, right? Um, yeah. And it's heartbreaking, but I think it's important for our family members and and community members to understand, like, the impacts of that and, like, the worry that marginalized people have to experience. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of goes back to that having we need to be having one on one conversations with people. Um, and that's I think. To me, that's the key because even in our immigration work, um, a couple years ago we uh, streamed a documentary. I think it's called Harvest of the Empire. I can't remember exactly. Um, and we had invited folks to come from the community. And a couple of the, because where we live, it's very orchard heavy. Um, so some of the growers came and they were like, wow, you know, I think my friends need to see this because it's like everyone has these conceptions of of black and brown people but they're like oh well everyone except for my friend you know juanito he's different but mm -hmm. it's like so it's easy for you to see the humanity in that person you know but not as a whole um and and it, it is a hard struggle to i mean it is putting that labor on marginalized people but it, you know, I don't know how else to do it because, yeah, we tell people, well, just Google it. You can figure it out and learn, but you really can't. You need to have that personal connection, I think, to truly change someone's mind. And I mean, I've seen it in my own life with my own family and, you know, people that we live around out here. So it's, 
I'm not sure what the right answer is or how to go about it, but just personally, I, I do feel like I do have to keep educating um, because otherwise they're not going to get it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I often feel like if I, I for me, a lot of times for me as it, cisgender, very educated white man of a certain age, um, that if I can't do the education on like even specifically about queerness related stuff, then if I can't do it, then who can? Yeah. Um, I'm in a better position than almost anyone. Um, and so, and it's, but it's, and I all, I completely agree. It's those per, it's the personal connections and the one-on-one. And even I think to the point that it, I don't know the, there, uh, the, the fact that there are like with the transgender bathroom issue as an example, where, think about it they can hear about it but the day that they see a trans kid who they know standing in a store terrified to go into either bathroom it suddenly clicks um and it takes those really intensely personal intimate encounters um to change some minds Oh, that was funny. I was going to tell you, Drew, speaking on what you were talking about, like bathrooms and trans bathrooms, was that um, I had to do a training with Saga and AJ recently at a school that had had like a queer exodus. There were families there uh, that were um, of different identities. There were trans youth that were there. And um, most of the time, like, so we were called in to do this training because the school had had so many problems. And um, I didn't want to do the training initially, um, but it seemed like it was an emergency. And we had a very, very tense meeting um, where they were like, I'm very angry that you won't do this training. And I was like, I'm very angry that you think that I'm going to be a check mark in your like, okay, check, we did that and we're going to be better because there's a lot of cultural issues that are like, it's like it's school culture at that point, right? Because the dynamic was just so bad and there was so many kids leaving. Um, And so we do this training and we think it's going well. And at the end, some of the teachers burst into tears. And it was like, I thought I was doing so well. I'm really trying. Um, And so it's really hard sometimes, I think, for marginalized people when they feel like when their defenses go up right because i think it can go either way like how you all were saying like proximity proximity will change someone's understanding and i believe that these teachers want to do better but there's also Mm -hmm. like this fear i think that holds people back um and i feel like that's what i was encountering with these tears right these teacher tears this fear of doing it wrong and And so if they're going to do it wrong, they just kind of gave up. They're like, why do it at all? And, you know, I mean, clearly we talked about like privacy and how to recenter things so that they don't feel that burden of like personally having to understand a trans person. Right. But like, what's your responsibility as like an adult and a teacher in a public space? Um, 
But it's really interesting. It was exhausting. Um, and I wonder if you all, you and Paula have encountered that in like your professional spaces where people are like, so like if they, if you, maybe you disclose or they meet your partner and all of a sudden they're like, I don't know how to act. So I'd rather not act at all. And then does that change your idea about proximity? I haven't really had that. I have, I mean, I can't remember the last talk I gave where someone didn't cry at some point. Um, but it tends to be more that they want to do better. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's not that they're, it, it's that they're like, wow, I have made some big mistakes. I may have hurt someone. I don't know. I like to believe that people don't want to hurt other people. Um, and so if they hear they've done it, they, that will bring up these emotions. Um, no, oh, oh no, I have had someone who's totally awkward with it. I just totally forgot this. I had a, this is, this is really funny. So a coworker of mine was Richard's doctor. And, um, well, I hadn't seen the coworker for a little while because he worked on a different floor of our office. We only have two floors. And I ran into him and I was like, so how's it going? He's like, good. How are you? How's your buddy? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was, and I was like, who? And he, he got totally flustered. And it was actually funny to see how flustered he was. <laughs> and, and, and I was like, my buddy. Yeah. Huh. You're like, are you talking about our pets? I'm so confused. Like, who is Buddy? <laughs> Who's your buddy? Um, and I ended up talking to him. I actually ended up talking to him about it later. And he sent me this email. He's like, I am so sorry. I just don't that. Because I was like thinking partner. I was thinking husband. And somehow Buddy came out. <laughs> All the mental um, acrobat. Stuff just happening in the brain. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, no, I can't say it's. I've necessarily had that experience either. Um, we one time, so we have the same eye doctor, and I went to get an exam, and Vanessa was having some eye issues that she had previously gone to the doctor before, and she was waiting for me in the lobby, and the doctor saw her. It's a super small office, and. She, like, recognized her, and then when we were in the room, she's like, oh, is that your sister? And I wasn't facing her because I was putting in the contact lenses that they gave you. Yeah. Um, so I paused for a little bit, and it's like, do I want to come out to this person? Like, I don't know. Uh -huh. She seems young and, like, not a racist or a homophobe. I mean, we're both. Um, so then finally I just said, no, she's my wife, and she... I could tell she was mortified, um, and she was like, just like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. But, you know, then afterwards, she kind of tried to pull it together. But um, we haven't really had anyone necessarily shut down. Just kind of like embarrassing things, like um, with the doctors, but not anyone saying, well, if I can't get it right, then I'm just not going to try. Yeah. I feel like most people want to try, like they want to do better. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. And they often, they, it's people who feel like they're doing the right thing. 
Um, and then all of a sudden they realize it and you've had to go and I've had to go through this same mental thoughts of, okay, is this where I disclose or not? I mean, yeah. at places like, I remember there's once a bike store that Richard and I were at with our son and the guys there are like, um, Oh, are you brothers? And we look at each other and our response <laughs> was actually, ew, <laughs> that, that is, that would just be so wrong. <laughs> Daniel and I've had encounters where people are like, where's your other child? And then like, I'm like, oh, okay, so great seeing you. I'll talk to you later because I'm never going to see them again. And then Daniel will be yeah. like, what other child are they talking about? And I'm like, oh, they remember you from before. Just move on. We're never going to see them again. Yeah. Like there's just times where it's not like I'm not going to go through the this is my transgender child. And like, this right. Is... And so like Daniel will be like, who's the other child? I'm like, it's fine. Keep going. You know, <laughs> you, we were... you had an older brother and he wouldn't brush his teeth yeah. and now he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> like we were, um, I, this is kind of embarrassing. My dad did not disclose to his siblings about what was going on with Daniel. So, um, we went to my grandfather's funeral and my dad's like one of those people that like, and this happened with my sister. Like you just didn't talk about it. Like my, you just showed up and people are who they are and you don't talk about it. Right. So um, we go to my tata's funeral and I have Daniel with me and he had, we had already like been, we were a year into social transition. So it's not like, it wasn't new. I get, well, it was new, but it wasn't like, I was like, dad, I'm surprised you didn't do this work. Um, so we go in and we sit down and my Theo turns around and he's like, y tu hija? and like, I was like, huh, what? He didn't tell you. So I did have to come out at my grandfather's funeral yeah. and say, this is Daniel now. And like, and I was like, dad. And he's like, I don't know. I didn't think about it. That's what he told me. That was his response. But we did have oh to, it gosh. was really awkward. And then it became like, I remember my aunt and my uncle were really nice about it. They're like, remember so-and-so they were gay and we should have supported them then. Yeah. It's not such a big oh deal gosh. anymore. We should be supporting people. So it was like a weird, interesting, <laughs> But coming out as relative, I think people don't realize that disclosure happens. The ideas around do I disclose or not is like a day-to-day. Because -day. people yeah, think yeah. you come out like one time and then everyone knows and it's not that way. Yeah, it's not. And especially, I mean, Vanessa and I both have also that having privilege. Like we don't necessarily look quote-unquote queer. So it's always um, interesting in these spaces having to navigate that and making those decisions do these people need to know like do I want to have this conversation right now um which comes up a lot with our clients of and who we tell and who we don't I do want to shift gears really quick and and bug you on this but I do want to talk about like the cases in Georgia have you found that that's something that is a norm around Not, were you just as like, shocked I was shocked, but not. Um, I mean, and have I ever heard of that, you know, for sterilization? No. But medical care in ICE is notoriously horrendous. Um, what was more shocking to me and what I can't quite wrap my head around is it is so hard to get treatment for conditions that people have that I don't 
Like they must have been so hateful to have taken these extra steps to have these surgeries. Um, I just can't envision ICE paying for these surgeries. So I definitely think there's some insurance fraud going on. There's a lot going on, but medical care in ICE is not great. And it's always, you know, something that always confuses me is how is it that like these medical professionals who are supposed to, you know, not have these biases and are supposed to provide care and, and they're not, I mean, we've, we don't do as many detained cases anymore because we just can't handle it. But, um, if clients were sick, it was so hard to get there. Even if they were taking medications before they went in to get ICE to give them their proper medications, it's always been a battle. So I'm curious to see more details about these incidents in Georgia because it, it it's just so egregious. But at the same time, I can't say I was surprised. I was more surprised that ICE was paying for it. Yeah. Yep. And the thing, one of the things with the medical profession that I, because I, it is, it, it's amazing to me that doctors exist who would do this. But then I have to remind myself that in most states, you need a doctor to enact death penalty sentences. Yeah. Um, wow. And if if you can find a doctor who will do that, you can find a doctor who will do anything. Um, but I agree. The whole it's it's fascinating. It's fascinatingly weird and scary and strange that like you would. I mean, it's been there was the case in I think it was Texas with the teenage girl who was raped and needed an abortion. Right. And how hard it was to get that done because we believe in life. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, you're willing to do something that will permanently sterilize people um, and rob them of a chance to create life. Um, and it just, I don't know, I, I want to know more of the details on this. I don't think we'll get them unless we have a change of administration. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And they're not going to talk about it during the election because it's so... Like, I'm like, every uh, town hall I get asked to participate in, I'm like, what are you going to do about the kids that are locked up in detention? Like, what are you going to do? I want to know what you're going to do. And there's no answer because they're not willing to yeah. talk about immigration right now. Um, they're yep. not. And, and I think a lot of it has to do is, you know, the Democrats don't really have a great record on immigration either. Yeah. Nope. It's to their advantage to not bring that up and to not point out how horribly abusive our system is because they are also very much complicit. So, um, you know, I'm not surprised that politicians won't address it because it's not to their benefit. And then, you know, at the end of the day, that just personally kind of makes me more discouraged about our system in the U.S. because it's not about lives. It's again about money and how can I get elected and yeah um, you know it, it's heartbreaking but this has been going on for years yeah um, and you know we've been trying to make noise about it for years and I'm glad that people are more aware um, and I don't know if maybe it's a sign that I'm just burned out but it's also kind of like where were y'all 
during the Obama administration, which I realize is not a healthy way to go with these things, but it's, it's such a huge systemic issue. And, you know, it's very overwhelming to me to even think about how can we solve this. And so people always ask me, well, what can we do? And I honestly don't know what to tell people anymore because contacting your politicians doesn't do much. Yeah. They're all complicit in this. So that's something I definitely struggle with is, you know, how do we, how do we get out of this? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big things is people need to keep shining a light on it over and over yeah. like this whistleblower. Cause I'll be quite honest. I did not know how bad it was during the Obama administration until people started talking about it during the Trump administration and the right wing started to fight back with, you know, this all started. The kids in cages started in the Obama administration. And I think people need to really take a close look at that. And we need the full court press on this one over and over and over that, you know, just because you're going to make DACA the law does not mean you get away with the kids who are coming over now yeah. and what you do to them. Yeah. Um, because it's still, it is horrendous. Um, I feel horrible that I didn't know. I mean, I was taking care of families in the, that I am sure had these experiences um, at the time and I did not know. Um, and so that's, I think the best thing people can do, keep shining a light, keep whistleblowing, um, keep telling people what we're seeing. Keeping open to learn too. Learning, listening to learn is really hard for people. Even I'm guilty of it And not getting defensive on it. Yeah. Yeah. If someone says, hey, the Democrats are really bad on this, that your reply doesn't have to be, yes, but we're so much better than, because, I mean, really the response should be, yeah, we screwed up there and need to get better. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I, I think it's interesting and also extremely sad that now the right, quote unquote, right wing is is upset about it, supposedly, because it started under Obama. But it's like you weren't upset about it then, clearly. Like, right. you don't care. No. <laughs> it's like, don't just say it. Yeah. No, they yeah. don't care. I think, um, and I think too, like it's, and it's also complicated, like, because especially border communities make money from being or working for border patrol. And like, there's all these like weird enmeshments around like, you know, what communities of color encounter when you live at the border and like, um, it's just, it's interesting. It's really, well, like for, I'll use, uh, as we have a parent community, obviously here in town for parents of trans youth. And, um, there was like a huge blow up around, like somebody made an anti border patrol comment or something. And, um, you know, it was interesting to see how many people were like, but I, I have family that works for border patrol and like, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I get it. Like, I get it, but there's still a lot of harm that gets done. And I don't know what the answer is. And this obviously isn't the space to have that conversation. But I I think it gets hard for people like in communities where like Border Patrol is like one of the few agencies where you can go and work, you know, 
Um, yeah. It's also kind of amazing to me in that perspective that are people, if you say to someone, Border Patrol does bad things, like, well, I know this person who's Border Patrol and they don't do bad things. Yeah. But on the flip side, they will say, they will say the people who are crossing here illegally are doing bad things. And you can say, well, I know this person who came over illegally who doesn't do bad things. And that doesn't get universalized. <laughs> I mean, it's it's really a it is this. I don't know. And the fact that on the border, we all know every. Border, no people who came here without papers and they have a story that they have heard and they know how hard it was and how hard they worked. And yet they think that person has to be the exception. Yeah. Well, exactly. Jose was like devastated when he learned that Cesar Chavez was anti-immigrant for a large part of his work. Right. Um, And Jose being an immigrant was like, dude, I had no idea. Like you always talk about Cesar Chavez because I had um, one of my teachers uh, when I went to Catholic school was an ex nun who had worked alongside Cesar Chavez. And um, she was pro immigrant. I was obviously like there were where my Catholic school was. I mean, there were probably multi-status homes and families. Right. Um, And so but he was devastated. He was like, see, this is what I encountered was Chicanx people really coming down on me, asking me about my status. Um, But that gets into the complexities of all of that, which it could be a longer talk. But I, I think that's where I, why I say like it's sometimes it's hard to talk to people who live along borders when you have that enmeshment with like government, with government agencies and then like your family participating because that's the only maybe one of the few opportunities that exist, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I it's hard. Also, it's a good job. It is. It pays well. It gives you insurance. You get a pension. Where else are you going to get that in a lot of places? And that makes it even harder. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we see that also in the context of who's actually working in these detention centers. It's oftentimes people of color. Yeah. And so it's just this. I mean, I think it's very much on purpose of how can we pit communities against each other? Well, we won't have any economic opportunities for these folks um, so they'll have to do these jobs and they'll defend it and they'll defend the system for us. So it's just such mm-hmm. an evil, Simple. calculated, you know, systemic issue. And um, because it's true, we oftentimes, you know, you'll go to a protest at a detention center. Look at the employees. They are almost all of color, almost mm-hmm. all ex-military um, as well. And they come out, and this is a quote-unquote good job, and and there they go. And they're the ones defending the system. Like, the the true millionaires who are profiting off of this, they don't have to lift a finger. Like, people are defending these systems for them and perpetuating them for them. I'm going to have to sit on that. Like, you made my stomach fall out of my butt, as they say. (laughs) Um, because no, but that's the nuance, right? Like that's the complexity of like systemic oppression and what it looks like. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. And it leaves everyone fighting over the crumbs while yeah. everyone else, well, the pe- the few people who can sit at the table are sitting at the table. Yeah. And making people think they're sitting at the table when actually they're fighting for the crumbs. Yeah. And, you know, how many times have we even seen this administration and their anti-immigrant rhetoric say to other communities of color, well, they're coming to take your job. Yep. But nobody questions why are those, quote unquote, our jobs? Why aren't there better jobs? It's so interesting, too, because it goes back to like when they say history repeats itself, because this is a ploy that conquerors have used yeah. for hundreds of years. Yes. Yeah. To use, uh, you know, people of color to police and fight each other for um, a level up, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to have to stop on that one and like okay. sit on it. I'm like, that was really deep. I'm like, whoa. Um, we always like to ask our interviewees, what are like three tips that you would give to somebody who wanted to be an ally to LGBTQIA people or um, immigrants or undocumented people? What are like three tips we could do? I think number one is, you know, just listen. Listen to what people are saying. Listen to what people actually want. Don't assume, you know, don't assume you know anything. Um, And then along with that, number two is don't get defensive when you find out you don't know everything that you thought you did. Um, Because I think that definitely places a big barrier on being able to be an actual ally if you're just defensive of of the things you don't know. Um, And then the third thing, it's I'm not sure how to word it eloquently, but something I've noticed is that a lot of times, quote unquote, allies are more worried about being liked by the community they're trying to ally themselves with and you know, doing it for the the Facebook and social media shares and and glory of like, look at me, I'm out here, and just maybe worry less about that and worry more about doing the actual work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw this come up a lot in, you know, when the, the the marches for Black Lives Matter first started popping up. Like we saw these white kids just, you know, streaming marches, posting themselves and like not thinking about maybe it's not safe for you to be showing people's faces. Um, you know, people of color are very much surveilled and you might not have this issue, but other people might. So almost kind of more for like the clout, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot from your post when you were sharing like how to protest safely. Um, and I was like really appreciative of those cause I quit recording And or I would only like I quit like Mm -hmm. taking pictures of being, you know, being at at the marches for that reason, because I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, this could not be this might not be safe. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I know that visibility is, is important, but I mean, if I think about it, most of my social media network, most of them agree with me. 
like it's like preaching to the choir. If we really want to start changing minds and, you know, making actual systemic changes, we need to go beyond our social media network. So um, I think it's just something to keep in mind that it's not about that. It's not about sharing statements or whatever, because you're preaching to the choir. How do we reach the people who don't think that way? Yeah. And not only that, but like, we're not even really aware about how that impacts people. Like I was telling Jose, like we really like if me as like who does grassroots organizing, like we really have to start thinking more about like the impacts of utilizing Facebook or not utilizing Facebook, because then you hear the stories like that come out of um, Aurora, where those people are still incarcerated for organizing protests. Um, and as for being community organizers, um, and they're in jail and they, they can't get out. Um, or like in Tennessee where they passed a law where you could lose your right to vote if you get in trouble for protesting. Um, so there's a lot of like silencing people's first amendment rights in like an overwhelming overlapping way, um, that we haven't seen in a long time. That's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, I think this is unprecedented because of the prevalence of social media. Like, I can't think of another point in history where First Amendment rights have been so easily attacked. And, like, all the protesters from Ferguson who mysteriously ended up dead, like, that's not a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. People think that can't happen here, but it absolutely is, and it does. It it can happen here because they used it in South America for a very long time. Yep. And I think that that's, it just hasn't, it hasn't needed to be used here yet. Um, yeah. Which is. That's what's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I think I've gotten past the point of it can't happen here. Um with seeing things like the vans driving around picking people up in Portland mm-hmm. um, was, yeah, anything, literally anything can happen here. And, you know, hearing people talk about ramifications of this election and like, oh, no, that can't happen here. That can't happen here. I think we need to take that phrase. We're not that exceptional. Yeah. American exceptional exceptionalism has gone out the door. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> if it was ever in the door in the first place. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was like a false sense of safety. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we also end with who inspires you right now, Paula. So do you have someone? Um, not anyone in particular, but I'm just in general, although there is a lot of heartbreak and strife that's going on, I'm very much inspired by really all the everyday people who are still fighting, who are still in the streets, who aren't afraid, who won't be silenced. That definitely inspires me to do better and, and, and try to, you know, be out there as well, because otherwise just thinking of the overwhelmingly crushing realities of, of all the systems we really have to dismantle, it, it really can, you know, get me down. But seeing folks out there and, and, you know, just seeing those inspirational stories has, has really helped me kind of get through this and push me to say, okay, you know, this is hard, but 
all we can do is fight, so we're going to fight. Andrew, yeah. who, who inspires you this week? Um, well, I think I'm going to have to go with a easy and obvious one for me this week is um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and the fact, all of the things that she fought for, um, for women and for LGBTQ people, and realizing that she had flaws. Yeah. Um, and her decisions related to Native people until this last session with the Oklahoma case, um, she often decided against Indian law. Yeah. And, um, but she can still be someone who I admire for many, many other things that she did in her life. Um, I, one of the ones I come back to that was very personally affected my family was my mom after my twin little brother, my surprise twin little brothers were born. Um, and I mean surprise as in, oh, look, there's another one um, <laughs> while she was delivering. Um, after that, my dad had to sign off permission for her to get a tubal. Yeah. And that is something that was changed directly because of litigation that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. Um, and, um, that is wonderful. And it just says to us that we can have our flaws and we can fight for stuff and we can learn from those flaws and, um, become the people we want to be. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. I get that a lot from people who talk to me as an advocate, like they're like, well, you're an advocate as a whole. And I'm like, no, like there's so many things I don't know that there are people yeah. that do advocacy work in that specific sphere that they would be the ones you would talk to. Like, I don't know everything. I still have biases of my own that I work through all the time because we've been yeah. conditioned to have them. Um, so yeah, Daniel and I had conversations about the complexities of heroes too, because he asked yeah. me about uh, RBG and were there negative things that she did. And Jose was like, I really liked because um, we recently watched a documentary about her where they show like this really easy picture graphic of like, for most of her career, she was very middle and then towards mm -hmm. the end of her life, more progressive. Um, so yeah, our heroes are complex. Just like Chavez I, being anti-immigrant. You know, I realized as I was saying that I actually don't know how she was on immigration law. I don't as know what her rulings were on immigration. I know that she made yeah. a disparaging comment against Colin Kaepernick when he took a knee. And then she apologized oh. for that. Um, okay. But, you know, I mean, people are complex. And I think yeah. that. I think we're not going to get it right all the time. Yeah. Ever. There's no way. Yeah. And I think it's important to keep that in mind for ourselves. Um, you know, we have to be okay with being wrong mm -hmm. at some point. And yes. the, what, you know, defines you is how you grow from that. Yeah. Yeah. And Lizette, who do you admire this week? I'm going to do the cliche and, and uh, that everyone was at Don Wooten, who was the whistleblower in the detention center in Georgia. Um, 
I, uh, when I read that story, when it first broke, it was like a very tiny, like I wasn't sure if it was true. And it just like knocked the wind out of me. Um, I think, I think people have a misconception. You always hear that misconception that, um, people, there's more good than there are bad. Um, Uh and then you see, and then, you know, a part of me is like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of violence in our human interactions when it comes to, um, policy and money and systems of oppression. And so I don't know. I, I think too, like there isn't a day that goes by when I'm asked to do certain things or that I don't feel nervous about it. And so I think it takes a lot for someone like Don Wooten to come forward and even in that fear and to be able to say like, no, this is happening and it's bad. Um, because it's scary to do that. Um, so she she inspires me today. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Paula. I appreciate yeah. you Thank for you being so on. Much. Yeah, this was great. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, I had a lot of fun. Maybe we'll chat on the phone again soon instead of just I on Facebook. <laughs> have a good day. All right. Have a good Thank day. Thank you. Y'all take care. Bye. Bye.